Turn in the Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 3 in a series in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 3. When you make a promise, you should keep it. When you make a promise, you should keep it, especially if it's a, a blessed promise that you've made. I remember when my kids were smaller, and Daddy would make a promise like, we're going to go to the beach today, or we're going to the movies, or we're going to uh, out for ice cream, or the yogurt, or whatever it was. As soon as those words left my lips, they were etched in stone. (laughs) Etched in stone. Now, the kids might forget uh, to brush their teeth, do their homework, clean the room, take out the garbage, all those other things. They could easily forget that, but they would never forget the promise that Daddy made. Parents learn that lesson. Now, here's the other lesson. I learned... Not to make the promise too early in the day. And you parents know the reason why. Because the rest of the day, until we left, it was every three to ten minutes, or five minutes, was, when are we going to go? When are we going, Daddy? So what I used to do is make the plans and not tell them about them, and plan just so there was enough time prior to their preparation uh, that it would take them to get ready to leave. And then I'd say, oh, by the way, we're going to the beach. Oh, we're going to the beach. Wow. I said, get your stuff because we're leaving right now. <laughs> now, in our chapter this morning, the Lord makes a great promise. The Lord makes a great promise. And that promise, even though it was made over 2,600 years ago, even affects us today. So I want to take a look at this wonderful promise that's in here. Now, our format is once again, we're going to read through the chapter, look at some major thoughts, and then focus in on this one particular thought that's found in verses 15 through 20. So let's read the chapter and we'll make some comments and then move on uh, to this wonderful promise that God has made. Jeremiah chapter 3. God says, if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers. Yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been violated? By the roads you have sat for them like an Arab in the desert. And you have polluted a land with your harlotry and your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there's been no spring rain. Yet you had a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. You have not called, have you not just now called to me, my father? Thou art a friend of my youth. Will he not be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken. You have done evil things, and yet you've had your way. First major thought we found in verses 1 through 5 is Judah had acted as a harlot. Not in a literal sense, although there was sexual immorality in these other religions. They had left the true worship of God and had gone to various other false gods of the nations around them. 
Verses 1 and 5 teach us that Judah had acted as a harlot. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and every green tree, and she was a harlot there. And I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorcement. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. And it came about because of the lightness of her harlotry that she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. In verses 6 through 10, we see that Judah followed the example of Israel. Now you remember the story. After the death of uh, Solomon in 931, there was a civil war. Ten tribes separated in the north from the two tribes in the south. The ten tribes uh, in the north were called Israel from that on time. The other two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were called Judah in the south. And they left. And they worshipped other gods. And Judah, after seeing that God punished Israel and allowed Assyria to take him captive, still didn't learn. Judah followed the poor example of Israel. Verses 6 through 10. Look at verse 11. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous and treacherous than Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you. And they will take you from one city and two from the family, and I will bring you to Zion. We see in verses 11 through 14 is the Lord called Israel to return. The Lord called Israel to return. Even though it had been over a hundred years since they had been taken captive by Assyria, the Lord still is long-suffering and patient and calls to them, Come, return to me. Verses 11 through 14 teach us the Lord called Israel to return to the true worship of the living God. Moving on to verse 15. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. And it shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord. They shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord and shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they miss it, nor shall it be made again. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. Nor shall they walk any more in the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel. And they will come together from the land of the north in the land that I gave to your fathers as an inheritance. Then I said I would set you up among my sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of my nations. And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from following me. Surely as a lover treacherously departs from her lover, 
So if you have dealt treacherously with, treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Verses 15 through 20, we see the Lord had made this great promise, this great promise. We'll talk about that just in a few minutes. The Lord made this great promise. Finally, in verses 21 through 25, a voice is heard on the bare heights, the weeping and supplications of the sons of Israel, because they have perverted their way and they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons. I will hear your faithlessness. Behold, we come to thee, for thou art the Lord our God. Surely the hills are a deception, a tumult in the mountains. Surely the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But the shameful thing has consumed the labors of our fathers since our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in shame and let our humiliation cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God. We are fathers since our youth even to this day. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Here in verses 21 through 25, he gives the means to this promise. Now they weren't doing it yet. They weren't doing it yet. The Lord is hoping that he'll hear these words. He's hoping that they will call out upon him as expressed primarily in verse 25, that they would admit their shame and humiliation. They would admit their sins and they admit that they had not obeyed the voice of the Lord. Okay, the means to this promise is found in verses 21 and 25, that they needed to repent. Okay, now, let's take a look at this promise that's found in verses 15 through 20. Now, as we looked at this chapter, and as we've looked at, perhaps, uh, the prophet Isaiah, prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel, and many of the minor prophets, it seems like it's all doom and gloom. It seems like it's all judgment. What's going on here? Well, the fact of the matter is that's true. And you know why? Because when these books were written, Israel had left the true worship of God. They were departing. They were worshiping other gods. And when Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and many of the minor prophets were written, they had to be sternly rebuked to return to the Lord and depart from worshiping these false idols and gods. However, gracefully and thankfully, included and scattered through all these books are these wonderful, wonderful words of encouragement that if the people would return to the Lord and they would draw near to the God of the Bible, that there was blessings and restoration and healing and a work that God wanted to do. Our passage this morning in verses 15 through 20 has one of those promises. Let's take a look. Verses 15 through 20. There's six elements that I find. Let's take a look at them. The first element that we want to cover is the meaning of those days and at that time. Verses 16 through 18. The meaning of the phrase, those days and at that time. What does he mean? What does the Lord mean by these two phrases? Notice verse 16. And it shall be in those days. The question is, what days? Verse 17, at that time. What time? Verse 18, in those days. What days, Lord? What are you talking about here? Now, as we look at these, it becomes apparent, verses 15 through 20, it becomes apparent 
that it wasn't fulfilled when the people just came back from Babylon 70 years after being uh, taken captive. It wasn't fulfilled then. It wasn't fulfilled in Ezra and Nehemiah when they rebuilt the wall and rebuilt the temple. It wasn't totally fulfilled then either. It wasn't fulfilled when King Herod refurbished the temple in the last century B.C. Built this big, beautiful temple. Matter of fact, it, it doesn't even mention the church age. It skips right over it. What is he speaking about when he says those days and at that time? Well, I believe he's speaking about when the king, David, his ancestor, Jesus Christ, will come again with a heart for the people and a heart for the Lord and will establish himself as king in Jerusalem as we see presented in many of the books of the Bible and presented in the New Testament also. The meaning of these days and those times are what we call the millennium, a thousand year reign of Christ here on earth. Now let's take a look. March right down the verses and take a look at what he says about this time. The first thing he says, the Lord will give shepherds after his own heart. The Lord will give shepherds after his own heart. In verse 15, he says, then I will give shepherds after my own heart. Now, as we have looked at the history, uh, as we marched our way through First and Second Kings, it became obvious that Israel, the ten northern tribes, they didn't have one good king. If you went from Jeroboam to Hosea, all the kings of Israel, there wasn't one good king. Now in Judah, there was a few. There were a few good kings. But a majority of them were not very good kings. Now notice what the promise is. He says, I will give you shepherds. Now some folks feel that that applies to spiritual leaders. I'm I'm not so sure. I think he's talking about leaders. They will give you leaders after their own heart. Now you remember what David was called? He was called what? A man after God's own heart. He is going to give us leaders like that. And who is the preeminent leader? It's Jesus Christ. He will give a shepherd after his own heart. Now, I've become somewhat jaded in looking at our leaders here at the country, in this country. It seems like uh, when we vote someone in, he makes a lot of promises, doesn't he? Or she makes a lot of promises. Then they get in and they seem to turn into another person. Rather than just looking out for the interest of the people, they look for the interest of their own selves. Someone told me that it's almost like voting is kind of fruitless now. I don't believe that. I don't believe that, but it begins to look that way. Because oftentimes, especially here in California, the people we vote for never get elected, especially here in California. And if they do get elected, they seem to turn to incompetent compromisers. Now, I don't like to pick on people specifically, but I will. You know, our former sheriff, Mike Corona. Do you know that Mike Corona spoke at this church? We had a special seminar, Mike Corona spoke. And he made all these protestations of being this Christian man. 
And yet, if the reports are true, what happened, Pastor? What happened, Mike? What happened, Mike? You're supposed to be representing the people, not your own selfish interests. But one day, one day we're going to have a shepherd who leads after the Lord's heart, not his own. So, wonderful promise the Lord will give us shepherds after his own heart. Look at verses 16 and 17. The Lord will establish his presence in Jerusalem. The Lord will establish his presence in Jerusalem. Now, when we read in verse 16 where it says, In those days, when you multiply the increase of land, they not say anymore, The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, not remember it, it shall not miss it, nor shall it be made again. It's kind of troubling because we oftentimes, we always focus on the, the Ark of the Covenant when the Ark is there. Because the Ark was a special place. It was where God's presence, in between the, uh, the cherubim, the wings of the cherubim, he was there. It was in the temple, it was in the tabernacle, it was in the temple that Solomon built. But in those days, there'll be no more talk about the Ark of the Covenant. Well, why? It was a special thing. In the Ark of the Covenant were what? The stone tablets. Why? Why no Ark of the Covenant? Well, come on. Look at what the Bible says. In that time, they shall call the Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. God will live among his people. God will live among his people. It's almost like the Ark of the Covenant was like a, like, a, like a kind of a down payment. It was a small evidence of God living among his people. But in that day, God will live in Jerusalem in the midst of his people. Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, will be called the throne of God. He'll be there, right there in the midst of his people. Ezekiel has a vision. Ezekiel has a vision. And it's in uh, verse four, uh, chapter 43. Let me read it to you. Just listen. You can mark it down. Ezekiel 43, beginning in verse 1. Just listen to these words. Ezekiel has this vision. And he sees the Lord. Then he led me to the gate. The gate of Jerusalem. The gate facing towards the east. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Was that song we sang? I saw the Lord seated on a throne. And the whole earth was what? Filled with his glory. That's what he's talking about. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the vision was like the vision which I saw by the river Chebar. And I fell on my face in the presence of the Lord. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And then he heard one speaking to me from the house while a man standing beside me. And he said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, 
neither they nor their kings by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings when they die. Why don't we need the the Ark of the Covenant of God? (laughs) Because the very presence of God, the very presence of God will be in Jerusalem dwelling among his people. Now there's a new... uh, there's a new video game. It's called Wii. Have you seen it? Where you can play various games in your living room. doesn't make any difference at any hour of the day, any weather. You can play golf or basketball or all these other games. And I suppose it's good because it's a good family game. Everybody can make, kind of enter into it. However, it pales in comparison to actually being there on the basketball court and the baseball diamond or whatever it is. That's, now excuse my analogy, but that's a little bit like the Ark of the Covenant. It was nice. It's a beautiful little box. However, (laughs) however, it's only a small, it pales in comparison to what's going to happen when God marches in to Jerusalem and, and sets his throne right in the midst of his people. The Lord will establish his presence in Jerusalem. Verse 17, the Lord will gather all the nations to Jerusalem. So it says, latter half of verse 17, in that day, at that time, all the nations will be gathered to it, Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord, nor shall they walk anymore in the stubbornness of their own evil heart. Now, right now, all the nations look at Jerusalem as a source of trouble. (laughs) They wish it would just go away. But you know, that's the exact opposite of what's going to happen. You know why? Because Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. That's what he's saying. And all the nations will want to be there. Everybody will want to be there. Why? Because the Lord is going to be there. It's not going to be the trouble spot. Everybody will say, when are we going to get to go to Jerusalem this year? We want to go to Jerusalem. Because the Lord is there. All the promised blessings are there. Do you remember Abraham was promised to what? His people were going to be a blessing to all the nations. All the nations will be blessed. They'll all be drawn to them. And notice what it says in the latter part of verse 17. And they'll walk no more after the stubbornness of their own evil heart. Now we see this in our world today, don't we? We see nation fighting against nation. Now, some folks said, you know, what's the problem with the Balkans? You know, the Balkans, that's old Yugoslavia. You know, for years they just lived in peace. You know why they lived in peace? Because Tito was in charge. And if they, he, if they started fighting with each other, he'd just come in and crush them. And that's the way it is. If we send in the peacekeepers and they, they, everybody stays away, as soon as you pull out the peacekeepers, what happens? They begin to fight because some of the trouble that between these nations goes back for centuries. Centuries. And they can't forgive each other. But guess what? I know somebody who's going to set everything straight. And his name is Jesus. They'll no longer walk after the stubbornness of their own heart. The Lord will gather all the nations to Jerusalem and there'll be peace throughout the earth. Look at verse 18. 
the Lord will reunite Israel and Judah. In those days, the house of Judah, that's Judah and Benjamin, will walk with the house of Israel and they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave their fathers an inheritance. Now that's starting to happen. We just see a, just a beginning. It's not, not fulfilled completely. But you see, in the year 931, there was a civil war. And they have not been together since then. 931 B.C. What was separated by man will be joined together by the purpose and the will of God. And Israel and Judah will be united and walk as one nation. Now, as we go through this, you look at this and this says, you know, Neil, this is, seems to be all Jewish. We're talking about Israel and Judah. In Jerusalem, it's all, it's all Jewish. Um, very keen insight. Because it is. Now, you remember that Jesus is Jewish. All the apostles, notice I'm saying not were, but are, all the apostles are Jewish. Abraham was the first Jewish person. And to him, the promises were made, what? That your people are a chosen people. Now, everybody, everybody kind of balks at that. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, what do you mean the Jews are chosen? They are God's chosen people. They're chosen to bear the Messiah that would bring salvation to this whole world. Isn't that true? That's why they were chosen. They're not any special, more special than, than Italians or Poles or, or Brits or French people. But they were chosen specifically to bear that seed that one day the Messiah might come. They're chosen. God, God didn't choose the Italian people. I don't know why he didn't choose us, but he didn't. <laughs> God didn't choose the Brits, the French, or anyone else. He chose the Jewish people. And so those first thousand years after Christ returns, guess what? There's a strong Jewish element to that, folks, because he's fulfilling all the promises that he made to Abraham through the prophets. But you know what? When we're walking in the streets of Jerusalem in that day, it's not going to make any difference, is it? No. Now, when we go into the new heavens and new earth, things will change a little bit. There'll be a, a different tip. But that which we're looking at right now, those thousand years when Christ is reigning, there's a strong Jewish influence because this is what God was doing through these people. And these promises were made, not to the church. Now, we have many Christians believe that this particular passage has to do with the church. It doesn't have anything to do with the church. These promises were made to our Jewish brethren and will be fulfilled by the Jewish Messiah. And we'll all be grafted in. You know, all of us, the rest of us who aren't Jewish, we're what? We're grafted in. But that's okay. I'm glad just to be included in the kingdom of God. The Lord will reunite Israel and Judah. Verses 19 through 20 kind of take a contrast. Here's the Lord's will in contrast to the people's action. Now we come back to reality. Here's the promise, but here's the reality. 
Here's the reality. The Lord always wants to um, set us in a pleasant land and give us a beautiful... That's His will. But at that time, they were dealing treacherously with the Lord. His heart has always been to bless His people. But that's contrasted to what the people were doing at that time. Now, we see the same thing today, don't we? Don't you? There's people... You know, they don't want to have anything to do. And the Lord's will, His purpose is what? Well, I will set you as my sons. I'll give you a pleasant, a beautiful inheritance. That's what the Lord wants to do, but they don't want to do, have anything to do with the Lord. We have the same thing today as we have back then. Here's the promise that God had made to Israel and Judah. But they, they weren't interested. Now, I remember the first time when I was a teenager in high school, somebody gave me an artichoke to eat. I was over at this girl's house and we were having dinner with her family. They said, we're having artichokes. Artichokes? I'd never seen an artichoke. This is back in the, well, be in the 50s. Artichoke. They set this thing before me. and it's, You know, it's kind of this yucky green color. And then they have this little thing of butter and a big bowl in the middle of the table. And I watch how they're eating it. They dip it in the butter. It doesn't look very good. And then they take most of it and they throw it away. And I'm thinking, what is this? What is this? This is crazy. But then I was converted to the joys of eating artichokes. Now, Psalm 34, 8 says what? Taste and see. Taste and see that, not that artichokes are good, they are. Taste and see that the Lord, He is good. He is good. He has great plans, wonderful promises for all of us. But we have to taste and see. Real quick, I want to read one other scripture. Now, it's found in Revelation chapter 19. But just, just listen. You can mark it down. Revelation 19.11. John has a vision. John has a vision. He says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire. And upon his head are many crowns. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on a white horse. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. So with it he might smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God of the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, in order for this to take place, most of the events are just right there. 
Right there. Israel has been gathered again. The prophecies of the first coming have been fulfilled. The Bible has proved itself to us to be true. Then there's just one little more promise that needs to be fulfilled. The whole of the Bible, up to the time of the taking out of the church and the wrath of God being poured out on, on the earth during those last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. All of it has been fulfilled. And all of us are sitting here and we're looking at this promise made to us and we're like my kids, Paul and Renata saying, can we go now, Daddy? Are we ready now, Daddy? <laughs> and I don't know about you, but as we were singing those worship songs, I was thinking, I see the Lord. I can't wait to see the Lord with his throne established in that beautiful city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a beautiful city now, but wait. I can't wait. How about you? Let's pray. Father, what an incredible promise. Waiting for the day of the Lord. Waiting for you to come riding in a white horse. Setting it right. Establishing your kingdom. What a promise. However, it's set in the context, Lord, of you calling your people back to you. This promise cannot be fulfilled in us unless we turn back to the Lord. Help us, each one of us, as we wait, not only to turn and walk with you in faithfulness, but be that witness to those who have not yet entered in. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me this morning. Now, I would be remiss if I did not ask today, are you ready? (laughs) Are you ready? How you enter into this wonderful promise whether it happens this afternoon or a few years from now, how you enter it in is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Because it's not by works, it's not being religious, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with opening your life to Christ. Why? Why would you say no? Why would you say no? Well, you know why you'd say no? Because you want to live your own life your way. My friend, my friend, My friend, don't do that. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the ways thereof lead to death. Spiritual death. Don't do that. There'll be some folks up here in the front. We would love to talk to you how you could become a member of the kingdom of God, a member of God's dear sons and daughters. It's just a step away. We'll never force you, but here's an opportunity for you to accept Christ. Please come forward. This morning, we'd love to pray and talk with you.